0: Well, amen. Thank you, Pastor Glenn, and what a joy it is to be in East Texas on the Lord's Day with uh, you all and to bring you greetings from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, your seminary in Fort Worth, uh, Texas. And uh, the first thing that I want to say here is what I say everywhere I have the chance to preach, and that is thank you for what you do to support our work at Southwestern Seminary. Now... It's especially special because, uh, as uh, your pastor mentioned, in fact, I got a photograph uh, this morning with the uh, staff that went out on the Moberly uh, Twitter feed, and I quote tweeted that, uh, 22, I believe, degrees from Southwestern Seminary represented on this pastoral team here at Moberly, and a number of students who will be earning their degrees at Southwestern are already part of this staff uh, as well. It's hard for me to think of many churches with whom there's been a closer bond with our seminary over the years than, than with Moberly. But particularly, I want to say thank you for something you just did a few moments ago that I hope you appreciate what it does to invest in the next generation of pastors and missionaries and church ministry leaders, and that is, you took up an offering. Now, you're probably thinking about how that works to support your church here at Moberly, and it does. But a portion of that money makes its way out of your church through the cooperative program to support the work of state missions and ministry here in Texas, but also our Southern Baptist Convention missions and ministries, including the six seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention, the crown jewel of which, of course, is Southwestern Seminary. But because of the generosity of churches like Moberly, every Moberly Baptist staff member or church member— And every Southern Baptist student who comes to our campus to study, whether it's for an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, or even a PhD, receives an immediate 50% tuition scholarship because of the cooperative program. It is the greatest deal going in higher education today, and we could not do what we do apart from churches that give sacrificially like Moberly. And so on behalf of all of us at Southwestern Seminary, thank you for what you do to invest in what we do at Southwestern Seminary. And I'm certainly thankful that, again, on both sides of I-20, from East Texas to Fort Worth, there is a great partnership between our seminary and this great church. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be at this morning in God's Word. If you have a copy of uh, God's Word in print or electronic form, I encourage you to take it out. Philippians chapter 1, one verse this morning, verse 27. And uh, I'm preaching this morning on this subject just one thing. Just one thing. Philippians 1, one verse, verse 27. If you have found Philippians 1, 27, let me invite you, if you would, to stand back up one more time. Let's honor the public reading of the Word of God. Can we do that? And let me just invite you to follow along in your hearts as I share this Word from God's Word. This is Philippians chapter 1, one verse, verse 27. And this morning I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. The scripture says just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. This is the word of our Lord. And thanks be to God this morning. Please be seated and may God richly bless the reading and study of his word together this morning. Have you noticed how in our contemporary culture, things that used to be remarkably simple and straightforward have become increasingly complicated and complex? Uh, there are many examples of this some of you I've noticed this morning maybe having your little uh, uh, plastic or styrofoam coffee cups to stay properly hydrated and caffeinated here this morning have you noticed on those coffee cups that oftentimes on the side it will say caution contents hot now Andy I would just expect that the coffee I get on a Sunday morning is going to be hot I I would assume you wouldn't need to write that out but the reason, of course, that got on the coffee cup was some years ago, a, a customer got a cup of uh, coffee from a fast food restaurant, evidently did not realize coffee was meant to be served hot, spilled it, got burned, sued that fast food restaurant, got a jackpot settlement, and lo and behold, coffee cups down since that time have caution contents hot on the side. If you're involved in education like I am, have you noticed if you're a parent or a principal or a teacher, superintendent, that that every year the student handbook gets a little bit bigger and thicker and more verbose every year? Have you noticed that? You know why that is? Because every year students keep figuring out more things that they're not supposed to do that we didn't know they weren't supposed to do it until somebody did it. And so the lawyers get called in. We got to write more language and put it in the student handbook. And that thing gets thicker and thicker, more complicated every year. But I like how one principal tried to simplify things. He, he told his students, he said, I, I, I want to boil it down to what I call my one rule that if you can just follow my one rule, you're going to be okay. And here was this one rule. Be where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to be doing, acting like a lady or a gentleman at all times. Period. I mean, that's deep, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah be where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to be doing, acting like a lady or a gentleman at all times. This principle said, if you can just follow that one rule, you won't have trouble with any of the rules in the student handbook, why? Because basically every rule in the student handbook is just a more detailed explanation of something not to do that would violate the one rule, right? For example, if I am where I am supposed to be, by definition, I cannot be somewhere I'm not supposed to be. So I don't have to list everywhere not to go. If I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, by definition, I cannot be doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. So I don't have to list everything not to do if I can follow the one rule. I think that principle has actually a remarkable application in the Christian life. Because I wonder if we have inadvertently, perhaps, made living this thing called the Christian life far more complicated and complex and cumbersome than it was ever intended to be. In fact, I wonder how many of us woke up this morning and when we thought about coming here to Moberly on a Sunday, thought first and foremost about the duty we have to carry out or the drudgery we have to bear rather than the delight we have of gathering together as the local visible church. wonder how many of us are living beneath our privilege as believers and experiencing the fullness of the Christian life because we've allowed the enemy to deceive us into thinking that the real key of the Christian life is all these rules and regulations and statutes and stipulations and we've forgotten the actual main thing the one thing that's why I'm drawn to Philippians chapter one because I think Paul does something here that is remarkable I think he cuts through a whole mess of stuff and gets to the heart of the matter he's writing to the church at Philippi one of the greatest churches in all the new testament had its genesis there in Acts 16 with the conversion of Lydia and her household and the Philippian jailer and his household. And Paul would spend years in discipleship and leadership development. He, he loved these people. You can read back earlier, uh, our ladies in the uh, bluegrass group quoted from verse six, uh, but you can just see early in the beginning of verse three, he, he loved these people, they loved him. You get to verse 21, there's this great exchange where Paul says for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And I'm torn between the two. I think it's better to go be with the Lord, but I think he wants me to be here with you. And so God's gonna sort all that out. And then we get to our verse this morning, where Paul writes just one thing. Let me bottom line it. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, isn't it interesting, my friends, that Paul references his recipients here, not by their geographic or their political status, but by their spiritual status. He doesn't refer to them as citizens of Philippi or as subjects of the Roman Empire, but he refers to them as citizens of heaven. Now, I know we have multiple citizenships. Uh, We're Texans, we're Americans. But if you're a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled child of God, your most important identification is as a citizen of heaven, as a person who belongs to the kingdom of God. And it's in light of that fact that Paul says we're to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, a gospel that at its essence is about taking that which was previously unworthy and making it worthy. I mean, you think back to the opening pages of the word of God, right? God creates the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve, puts them in the first dwelling place, the garden of Eden, and he gives to them one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil for the day you do that you will surely die but genesis 3 alone comes the snake in the grass the serpent the devil himself according to revelation 12 who deceives them into questioning the word of god hath god really said and the goodness of god god's holding back on you and they eat of that forbidden fruit and all of a sudden everything changed sin entered in sin was ushered in. Sin changed everything about the cosmos. Sin changed everything about them. And down through the tunnel of time ever since that point, every one of us comes into this world with an inherited sin nature that inevitably manifests itself as we commit our own individual acts of sin. Now that's not news, is it really? I mean, just just hang around kids for a little bit. You'll figure this out, right? Or, or better yet, become a parent. You know, becoming a parent may do more to make you a theologian than anything else in life. Because there are certain concepts you understand a little more vividly as a parent. I, I've noticed as a parent, I've never had to teach my two children how to sin. Ever. Andy, that just came hardwired, you know. I mean, they, 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 I don't have to teach my kids how to disobey. I've got to teach my kids how to obey. I don't have to teach them how to do what's wrong. I've got to teach them how to do what's right. In fact, Paul puts it elsewhere this way For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all there means all, without distinction and without exception. He goes on to say that the wages, the payback of that sin is, is death. That's not just physical death, that's spiritual death, separation from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, did not leave us or consign us to that horrible fate. But he did what only God can do. He sent his only begotten son for us. In fact, in that great verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, really the gospel in a verse, Paul describes what happened at the cross when he writes, for he, that is God the Father, made the one, that is God the Son, who knew no sin, sin for us. Have you ever stopped to think about the enormity of that one clause? That on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin that would ever be committed by every person who would ever live, even though Jesus actually committed no sin. In other words, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my life and your life and your life and your life. And why did he do this? Paul goes on to say, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin that would ever be committed by every person who would ever live, even though Jesus actually committed no sin. In other words, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my life. Why? Get this. So he could treat me as if I had lived Christ's life. Wow! I mean, think about that. At the cross, Jesus takes my sin and in exchange, he gives to me his righteousness. Folks, that's not just good news, that is the greatest news. Because let me tell you what it does. It reminds me that the only thing I bring to the table in my salvation is my sin. All I had to offer him was my brokenness and strife. Everything else the grace, the faith, the mercy, the forgiveness, the union with Christ, the adoption, the peace, the justification that's all God. That's not just good news. That is the greatest news. In my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so at its essence, the gospel is about taking people who were previously unworthy, dead in trespasses and sins, and making them worthy. Not a worthiness that comes from within, but a worthiness that comes from without. If we were in a classroom at Southwestern Seminary, this is where we'd throw out the $10 theological term imputation because it's the language of crediting. So at the cross, my sin is imputed to Christ. It's credited to Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that his righteousness could be imputed, could be credited to me. Now in light of that, Let's go back and reread Philippians 127, where Paul says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, that is, as people who have been made worthy because of the gospel of Christ, now live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That that means that the metric, the essence of everything we do in the Christian life should be how is this going to help people encounter the same life-giving Christ that I claim has changed me. Folks, this revolutionizes everything. Uh, Especially the kind of common prevailing wisdom, I think, in terms of the Christian life. You know, years ago there was this TV personality named Art Linkletter who uh, had this expression, kids say the? Yeah, the darndest things. And kids do say some darn things. But I would submit to you, actually, church people say the darndest things. (laughs) And they say them to their pastors. I've long thought as a pastor, I ought to have a sign around my neck on Sunday mornings, say crazy to me today. Because y'all do it. And let me tell you how church people do it. They'll find their pastor on a Sunday and they'll go up to him and say, now pastor, you know, I just don't see what's wrong with, okay, fill in the blank here, of your favorite questionable activity, recreational pursuit, beverage, movie, whatever it may be, thing that you know you really probably shouldn't do, but you really wanna do it because your friends are doing it and it looks cool or popular. And if the pastor would just say it's okay, well then it wouldn't just be socially acceptable, it would be spiritually acceptable. And you know, that kind of thinking betrays something. It betrays a lie that many of us have bought into. And that lie is that the real key to living the Christian life is to have one foot on Jesus and then live our lives to see just how much hell we can have in our lives and still make it into heaven. And it gives the impression that Jesus is not enough. You you remember the encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman there in John 4? When uh, Jesus is there at the well with her and Jesus says to her, give me a drink, and she says, wait a minute, what what are we doing here? You're a man, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we're kind of crossing a lot of barriers here, aren't we? And Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink. Could you take one drink from me, you're never going to thirst again. Why is it so many of us who claim to have taken that drink from Jesus, are living lives still searching for some other fountain we think we're going to find meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in. In fact, maybe that's our greatest challenge in evangelism today is people who are not connected to Christ and not connected to the church don't see anything different in us to where they're attracted to us. In fact, what they see us doing is trying to chase the same things, the same pleasures, the same pursuits that they're chasing. And so we claim to have Jesus, but what difference does Jesus really make? If we're trying to be more like them, chasing the same stuff they're chasing. See, at the end of the day, it really is about helping people encounter Jesus in a saving way, the gospel. Do we really believe Jesus is better than all the other stuff? You remember the temptations of Jesus, don't you, with the devil? Or the second one, Jesus is taken up on a high place by the devil and shows him the kings of this world and says, bow down and worship me and all this can be yours. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. Why is it that we really don't evidently believe that Jesus is enough and that Jesus is better than all the other stuff? And by the way, this is what brings unity in the church, that kind of gospel central understanding. Paul goes on, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you. Word always gets around. What will he hear? That you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. By the way, when we keep the main thing, the main thing, we're going to be contending together rather than being contentious with one another. We're not going to have time to fight about the stupid stuff when we're focusing upon the things that matter most because we remember what matters most. And it's not about getting my way. My preferences, my wishes. Because honestly, at the end of the day, and again, I know we haven't known each other that long, and I, I hate to kind of just go there, but you know, at the end of the day, God really just doesn't care about your opinion. I'm sorry. Uh, I hope that doesn't uh, uh, discomfort you, but but He really doesn't. He doesn't care about your opinion. But but He doesn't care about my opinion either. You know what He does care about? He cares about us having His opinion. And the only way I ever get to his opinion is to submit myself and submerge myself under his authoritative word and to do what he's called me to do, which is to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is helping people encounter Jesus in a saving way. That's what matters most. And so at the end of the day, the key to living the Christian life is not, here's all my list of the thou shalt nots. Here's all the things that I don't do, and I'm going to get real legalistic, real pietistic, check all these things off, and I'm miserable. Nor is it about, here's all the thou shalts. Man, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this. and Man, I'm going to be there every time the doors open to do all this. I'm miserable. It's not the thou shalt nots or the thou shalts. But it's helping people encounter the vow. A rich, vital, personal communion with Christ. That is the outflow of what we're living in and what we're experiencing every day is people who claim to be changed and gripped by the gospel itself. It really does make all the difference. So just one thing. Paul says, as citizens of heaven... We're to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so to you, my friends, this morning, just one question. Are you truly a citizen of heaven? Has there been that point in your life where you've turned from your sin and repentance and you've trusted Jesus by faith alone to be your Savior and your Lord? And if you are, then the follow-up is, is your life being lived, worthy of the gospel. Can people see you on a day-to-day basis and see in and through you that the gospel is true and that Jesus is real and that Jesus is better than all the other stuff that is out there? Where are you this morning? Let's pray together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Loving Father, we're so thankful. For these moments together around your word, God, you are so wonderfully good to us. You are better than we deserve because what we deserve is death and hell. What we deserve is to be eternally separated from you. But Lord, you've given to us everything. Father, all we have is Christ, but all we need is Christ. Oh God, in these moments together, I pray that you would just take this word and plant it deep into our hearts and our minds, our spirits and our souls. God, I do pray if there is anyone here this morning who does not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, oh God, may today be the day where they come, where they respond, where they receive. For believers, oh God, I pray that you would stir something within us. May we never settle for counterfeit churchianity, but be committed to living out an authentic Christianity as we go doing everything we can to make it as impossible, humanly speaking, for anybody to die in East Texas and to go into a Christless eternity because they never heard and they never saw the difference that Jesus makes. Oh, Lord, we commit this invitation to you. Use it for your glory. Do business right here and right now. We pray in Jesus' name.